The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we sit before you now, eager to hear from you. Thankful that you want to talk to us, that you want to guide us, that you want to be found. So we ask, please show yourself, show your hand, reveal your truth, align our hearts with us, fill us. In so doing, shape us to be a people who follow you, to be a church who follows you. I pray that kind of corporately and individually at the same time, we help us to be a people, individuals and a corporate people that follow you, that hear you and understand you, surrender to you and follow. Take this passage today and use it towards that end. Will you make clear the, the details that are, that are challenging, that are confusing in it? Will you make them clear? Will you help us to understand? And I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage as as a help to us, your people, into the church as a whole. So use it, Lord. Shape us, direct us, encourage and assure us, and be honored as you do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world that is fallen lost and confused and headed towards God's judgment. The book of 1 Peter has made that clear, especially in what we saw last week, chapter 3, where the story of Noah with its great divine judgment was compared to and connected to our day. We live now in days like those of Noah. And as the Bible says, that's true of us, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Which, when you think about it, actually includes us, too. It's not just the world out there that has strayed from God. I have. You have. We all have gone astray, wandered away from him, and sadly still do. Sin was a dominant part of our lives, and it remains uncomfortably very present still in us and around us, has us. We are, we are just as prone to be confused and deceived as, as the world out there is. We're, we're inclined to do the same things that our neighbors do. and We lust after the same stuff that our coworkers and, and classmates and friends lust after. We're just as inclined sometimes to call it good and okay as they are. That's, that's a problem for us. That, that's, that's a problem for us, not just them. And God's judgment is coming against all unrighteousness. So where does that leave you? Well, have you been baptized? If so, then you have nothing to fear from God's judgment and nothing to fear from this world that we live in. Let me say that again for us all to hear and to think about carefully. Have you been baptized? 
If so, then you have nothing to fear from God's judgment or from this world that we live in. That is what I said. And as I say that, it probably like right away raises some red flags for some people. There are at least maybe some yellow flags of caution, as it should. As it should. However, as we work through the passage today at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3, I think what we're going to see here is that the questions that arise in us get answered. And simultaneously, our understanding of what baptism is gets reshaped because some of the, the red flags, that, or these, these yellow flags that were raised there because we are misunderstanding what baptism is or others that we know are misunderstanding what baptism is, and so that raises right caution. But so it's going to simultaneously redefine what baptism actually is, and then it's going to explain why it is that I would say, if you've been baptized, you have nothing to fear from God or from man. That's what we're going to look at today in this passage. And I recognize baptism is a complicated subject. We're not going to say everything we possibly could about baptism. We're going to say what Peter says here and, and expand it out just a little bit. And if, then, as you think about and hear this about baptism, if in some ways you want to respond to that and say, I need to be baptized, well, we actually are going to have a baptism service uh, second week in December, I believe. So contact the church office or an elder if you'd like more information about that. Let me read the whole paragraph, though, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. Give us the context of it all, and then we'll draw out just two observations from the last two verses only. Here's 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 1 Peter 3. Two observations. The first one's longer than the second. Here it is. And these, these, both these observations are kind of like long statements. I'm going to repeat them several times. I, I thought about simplifying them, but I thought, actually, no. I'm going to say the whole thing, and then we'll kind of work through the pieces of it. Baptism is how we are meant to call on God with the faith that joins us to Christ. Long sentence. Say it again. Baptism is how we are meant to call on God with the faith that joins us to Christ. Baptism is how we're meant to call on God with the faith that joins us to Christ. Several particular points there. Let's work towards them. The physical act of baptism is what's in view here in this passage, which at that time would have been done by completely immersing somebody into the water totally dunking them. That's what the word baptize means, to dip in or to plunge into some substance, usually water. Baptism of that sort, what Peter has in mind, and he says that, baptism like that, corresponds to this. 
It resembles, it matches in some ways what we just saw Peter talking about prior, last week in verse 20. People in the ark brought safely through water. And you recall, if you were here last week, that the grammar there, the language there, actually the brought safely through uses the root word to save, to express something like they were, the people were, eight people saved through the ark, through water. Saved through the ark, through water. And the important point in Noah's flood and the corresponding point that many of us just kind of automatically miss when we come to verse 21 is that in baptism also, like in Noah's ark story, the water is not the saving element. The water kills. It does certainly affect a cleansing at the end. I mean, you come through this and the world ends up fresh and new, but that's after and really because the water first destroyed. So we, we're not just looking at the water. That's one of the mistakes we often make is only focusing on the water. It's the whole picture that corresponds. Noah saved down into and then out of the water into a new life. That corresponds with baptism. We have to think about the whole thing if we're going to understand this. And we have to think about it in two ways. The, the terms I'll use here are the theological way and the, and the physical way, but you could probably use some other things, the, the spiritual way and the tangible way. We need to think about these two angles of, of baptism theologically, what it's expressing in, in, in the symbolism, and then what about it physically when we actually do the act? And how does that relate to the theological? So two angles we've got to explore here. And we'll start with what I'll call the theological, the theology behind baptism. For Christians, like with Noah, baptism is modeling the Christian carried into and then through God's judgment safely, not destroyed by it, but saved all the way through it to emerge safely on the other side of judgment, cleansed to experience a new life. That's what Noah's story shows us. And it's also what Paul actually says in the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Pretty important passage about the theology of baptism there. He tells us what's kind of going on behind it. He says there, Paul does in the beginning of Romans 6, we who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death. So you think about this going into the grave, going into the tomb of the deeps of the sea. That was what happened to us spiritually like, like what happened with Noah when he got into the boat, physically. We're baptized into Christ's death then, and the ark then, like us in Christ, it goes through the judgment. It's battered by, by all the rain and by all the waves, and it's, it's swamped by the tides, and it's tossed back and forth, and the wrath of God almost literally slams against the side of the ark, and Noah inside feels it but is not impacted by it. The walls of the ark shield him and that little group. So he faced the judgment but was shielded from it. And in Christ, we too go into the grave facing the judgment and we go in dead. But of course, the ark didn't sink. It didn't break up. It passed through and every one of the passengers came out the other side. That's what they thought would happen. That's why they got in the boat. Well, we too in Christ, we go into the grave so as, Paul says, to be raised out of the other side safely to new life. 
to walk in newness of life. It's Paul's phrase in Romans 6. Saved through the wrath, saved to life again, cleansed through Christ's resurrection. Which is what our verse 21 says. If you read it again and you skip the, we'll come back to the part, I'm going to skip here, but you skip the parenthetical, not this, but actually that. Skip that for a second in what verse 21 says. Baptism, which corresponds to Noah, now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Paul in Romans 6. That's Peter right there. That's actually Peter in this very same book, chapter 1, verse 3. This is almost the same thing, chapter 1, verse 3. In mercy, Peter writes, he caused us to be born again, saved, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What caused us to be born again? What saved us? Christ's resurrection. He brought us a new life because we were connected to him. So that's the theological angle. That's, that's the the spiritual that stands behind all this. And it's really important to understand that Peter here, Paul in Romans 6, gives us that explanation, the truth that lies behind baptism. It makes sense, and I bet that most of us here probably are relatively familiar with that. We talk about it somewhat commonly. It's true. It's very important that we be familiar with it. It's what's modeled by Noah in the ark. It's what's taught by the, the apostles and this is an important piece of understanding baptism, but it's only a piece. It's the first piece. It's not the whole thing. Because, if you think about this, the, that spiritual union with Christ and that dying in Christ, our sins being, being what kills us and then Christ's resurrection being what raises us, that whole union with Christ and traveling through the judgment into new life, that all would be true whether baptism existed or not. That's not true because of baptism. This spiritual theological truth that we're all familiar with that I just kind of ran through there, that's true of a Christian before baptism. And it's true of Christians who haven't even been baptized. That's what God does when he saves somebody. So there's this question... That's true spiritually, theologically. So why baptism? What is the physical piece? Why do we do that? It does exist, and we do do it physically. We are physically baptized, so why? And the text says this about baptism. It does say that this physical activity called baptism, it says that it saves you. What does that mean? important to ask that. And this is going to get us to this key place that physical baptism is meant to occupy in the life of the church, but especially in the individual life of the individual Christian. That particular. Baptism is meant to be something for each of us. Let's see what that is. But first, here's what it isn't. The middle of verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. That may be how your translation reads. It is how my translation reads. And that's a fine translation. But a more literal translation would help us understand what Peter's actually trying to get at. 
Literally, it's not the removal of filth from the flesh. You read that literally and you think, oh, okay, yeah. Of course, because no one ever thought or thinks, no one ever thought or thinks that baptism saves because it's getting the literal dirt, the literal soil off of my skin. Nobody ever thought that. So Peter's not helping us out by denying what nobody ever thought. That's about literal dirt on the literal skin. Somebody's getting it. This is very important. Because this is the biggest, the single biggest misunderstanding of baptism. And when we see it happen widely, that gets the rest of us all skittish. Baptism saves, but there is no saving, cleansing power in the ceremony or the action of baptism. That's not even what baptism actually is. See, we do something that's not what baptism is. We dunk people in water, but that's not baptism. Put this another way, it maybe it was your understanding, or we certainly has been a lot of people's understandings, that by getting dunked in water, by, by voluntarily submitting myself to this ceremony or this rite or this ritual, that's something in that when I go into the water, the water washes away my sins. The participation in that act washes away my sins. I'm dunked and I come out the other side right in the eyes of God because I did this. That's not true. That's exactly what Peter is saying is not the case. Not. Baptism is not the removal of filth from the flesh. So many people have gotten dunked, but all they got was wet. Not saved or clean. That's, that's the problem when we hyper-focus on just one element of it, the water, and don't see the whole picture. Rather, Peter says, continuing on with this, not this, but this, in the middle of verse 21, not that, but rather, baptism saves you as an appeal to God. That's where the sentence continues, but there are a couple confusing things here that off, off the side here I need to clarify, because depending on what translation you have here, even my own translation, there are some things here that are going to be confusing if we don't get them straight. So the word here is appeal. The, the verb form of it is to ask a question, to, to raise an issue of, of, of a request. Now, there are some translations, maybe yours, that, that kind of push this in a way of to reach towards God, not with a, an, an appeal, but to reach towards God with an offer. A pledge is the word that's often used here. And in some way, the reason they go there is in some way we are offering ourselves to God. But that's not what he's getting at. The word is appeal. I'm asking for. And the second confusing part, I'm not asking for a good conscience. I'm asking from a good conscience. The good conscience is already part of the person being baptized. 
some translations, depending on which one you have, it makes it what the, good, what the baptized person is asking for. And grammatically, that is possible. But logically, it's not. Always true in baptism, the person doing it, the person stepping into the water is doing so knowledgeably, voluntarily, in hope. The attitude precedes baptism. It's, it's, it's reflected in Noah and the boat. It's why they got in the boat, is that they, they had in, in their minds, in their hearts, they had a good conscience. They had an attitude that said, I understand what's going on here, and I understand what's coming, and I understand what's being offered, and I need that. So please, from good conscience, Noah and company, offered up an appeal to God. In our context, we could say that physical baptism appeals to God for the theological piece we just talked about, the first part. The theological realities are me saying, here I am, Lord, put me and my sin into Christ, killed on the cross, buried. Put me, this me, put me to death in Christ. Plunge me into the water. And then put me safely in Christ and in his resurrection, resurrect me. In his coming to new life, carry me through death safely to new life. I'm casting all my hope onto that plan. I've heard it and I understood it. That's my only hope. Here I go. And I jump to my death into the water. That's what baptism is. A good conscience believing, understanding, hearing, understanding, believing, and hoping, and then being physically baptized as the way I ask God to make that death and that resurrection mine, to make the theology that's out there true of me. It's the way I am meant to, the way Christians are meant to call out to God with the faith, not instead of the faith, to call out to God with the faith that joins us to him, that saves. You've got to hear the faith right there. That's key. Baptism is the way we appeal to God, the way we turn to him, the way we cast our hope on him, the way we trust him, the way we, the way we hear and, and reach out, and then he hears and responds, identifies us with Christ, kills us, and raises us with him, saving us. That's what Peter's saying here about baptism. And that's how Christians in most of the world's history have turned to God and cast their hope on him in faith. But it gives many of us some significant pause, at least in Western evangelical circles, it gives many of us some significant pause because it feels so close to a work. That's, that's where a lot of our red and yellow flags go up. Like It feels like, are you saying like there's a work there to do? Because we've missed the thing that Peter expressly refutes. It is not the work. It's the interaction with God that the work is expressing. It is not the work that wipes away the filth. It's the appeal to God that connects me to Christ, that kills me and raises me again. 
We need to think about what Peter refutes and then what he does say. But we don't, and so we're often kind of skittish with it, and we don't want to go anywhere near baptism. And Instead, we turn it just to, we say, it is, it is faith alone that saves. It is faith alone that saves. It is faith alone that saves. And the Bible says we express that faith by being baptized. But watch what's happened. A lot of us in the Western evangelical world, we've changed that to express that faith by praying the prayer of salvation. By making a decision for Christ and raising your hand or standing up or coming forward. I've actually seen witnessing tools that are in booklet form and on the last page of the booklet have a fill-in-the-blank section where you fill in your name and the date and sometimes even the time on that day when you trusted Christ. And then it says, this is helpful for you to keep this booklet and this page in particular to recall when it was that you closed with Christ. So we've taken out baptism, which is in the Bible, and have just replaced it, guys, with praying the prayer, raising your hand, walking the aisle, standing up, filling in your name on a piece of paper. And when we do so, we are all very quick. I've, I've, I've shared the gospel a ton through a booklet that has a prayer at the end of it. Tons. And every time I've done so, like you've done, don't you always say, now guys, it's not the prayer that saves you. It's the faith. It's not the getting wet that saves you. It's the faith. Same thing. One's in the Bible, one's not. Why is this one in the Bible? Why baptism? Why? For a couple of reasons. Baptism is external and public. Praying the prayer is maybe not. Baptism is external and public. All can see it. And it's graphic. You can understand right there the, the elements are, are depicted. It's, it's right there in front of you. The theological elements come out and you see death, the old me deserving judgment and going into the grave and the new me being raised out like Christ was, brought up clean. It's, it's graphic. It shows it right there for everybody to see. And it's definitive. It's something that you stand in front of and can think about. Do I want that or not? And there's no, there's no confusion as to whether or not you actually stepped over the line. I've, I've told this story before when talking about baptism. I think it was Josh McDowell that first told this story, but some, it, it's years old, and it was somebody who spent a lot of missions time in the Soviet Union. And whoever it was, this man tells the story of being in a church in the Soviet Union one day on a baptism Sunday. And there were in the front row were several people dressed with white gowns there. Not, nobody else was, just those people right there. And then they came up to get uh, some time at the microphone, and then they were dunked in front of everybody. And somebody from that chair in a suit and a tie got up and took a picture of them and then sat back down. And Josh McDowell, I think it was, says that he said to his interpreter, oh, is that the guy from the church office you know, taking a picture for the newsletter? put it in the bulletin board. This is, remember, the Soviet Union. And the guy said, oh, no, that guy's from the KGB. 
That's the picture going in their file. He's not taking a picture of anybody else here. Because who knows what's the deal with everybody else here? Those people, though, clear. I'm in the water. Come what may. There's a judgment coming. There's one boat. I'm in. Take a picture if you want. Put it in my file if you want. I got no other hope. Here's the microphone. Put me in the water. That's the definitive nature of baptism. And silently praying a prayer does not do that for you. It doesn't do that for the public. And it doesn't give you in future times, moving towards our second point here, it doesn't give you in future times the clarity looking back. I understood it all. I saw it. And I trusted him. I really did. It doesn't give you the same thing when you've written your name down only on a piece of paper as to when you pray to prayer. Baptism's different. It's meant to be something. It's meant to be. It is not just the dumping, dunking in the water. And in that situation right there, those people, nobody took baptism frivolously. In most of the world, baptism has not been taken frivolously. But we miss a lot of this because we're worried about works, rightly so, because many people misunderstand baptism. And we don't really, therefore, understand the, the line and the crossing over it. I'm in. And so we have a lot of people, I mean, even myself, I, I was a Christian for years before I was baptized. A lot of us, that's, that's kind of our, our situation, and so we don't feel the importance of it. Okay, that's okay. But maybe it would help you in ways that we'll talk about in the second point if you were baptized and did have that spot where you could say, that's when I know. Confusing things now make me wonder, but that's when I know. I closed with Christ, and he claimed me. The old me died. The new me was born, and he grabbed me. He's not going to let go of me. That's when I know. Baptism is meant to be the way that we express the faith, the way that we appeal to God with the faith, with the faith that closes us up with Christ and saves a public statement and a private reassurance, which leads to the second point, which is shorter. Again, a long sentence. The point is short, the sentence is long. So I'll say it several times. Baptism is meant to assure you that God will bring you safely to new life with him. Baptism is meant to assure you that God will bring you safely to new life with him. Meant to assure you that God will bring you safely to new life with him. So verse 21, baptism of this sort that we've been describing saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you look at your baptism and you think it through. Maybe not in the moment, maybe a couple years later. You think it through. I called out to God and I asked him all that theology I read about in Romans 6. I asked him for that. 
I asked him to identify me with Christ's death, to put my sins on Christ's cross, to plunge me into the spot where in Jesus the judgment falls. He was crucified, and I asked for that, for me to be included in that. Okay, and then you keep thinking, was there any more to that story? What happened next? Because if that's all, I'm dead. If the resurrection did not happen, we of all people are the most to be pitied because it's all false. We end up dead, but we've been living our whole lives under this false, this delusional constriction. If that was it, then I'm in trouble. Was there more? Verse 18 says, yes, he was made alive in the Spirit. And verse 20 shows us, yes, Noah was brought safely through the water. So the end of verse 22, I'm saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Buried with him, he didn't stay dead, he rose, and I did too. Your baptism is supposed to tell you the story of you in Christ. It's supposed to tell you the story of you in Christ. It is supposed to testify to others. But sometimes when we do baptisms, we actually inadvertently overemphasize that because we're doing it in public, and so clearly that's a public display. And we, we talk about, hey, invite your family and your friends so that they'll see this. It is a public display, but it's supposed to be speaking something to you. to help you understand what you believe happened to you. Once in the moment when you do it, but then in years to follow on, it's supposed to speak to you about what you believe. Especially in the hard times of doubt, it's supposed to remind you that Christ was raised and you were with him. Baptism is, is meant to be a, a tangible reminder in, in the midst of the troubles that we face. It's meant to be a reminder to you, Christ was raised and I was raised with him. That was the purpose of his suffering in verse 18, to be raised and to bring unrighteous people to God. And so you can walk it through in your mind. Am I an unrighteous person in the past? Yep. And today, still. I'm one of the sheep that wanders. Okay? He's, he died to bring unrighteous people to God. So I guess I qualify for that. Was he able to accomplish the goal that he set out to do? That is what God sent him to do. Could he? Did he? Well, he raised him to prove that it was done. And his exalted nature, Christ has been raised and Christ has been exalted and sits in absolute authority in heaven to further reinforce the point. It worked. He came to bring unrighteous people to God. He, claimed, he came to claim people to attach them to himself. And where is he seated right now? At the right hand in heaven, reigning. So where are you? This is, 
ironically, why Paul in Ephesians 1 can talk about how we are already seated in the heavenlies. We're identified with him. In, we're, I mean, I'm seated right here. You're, you're seated right there. I'm standing right here. But in some odd way, some spiritual way, Paul says we're already seated in the heavenlies because we're seated with Christ at the right hand in the very presence of God. He sits there in heaven and reigns. Angels and authorities and powers have all been subjected to him, and that means everything has been subjected to him. The purpose of his suffering was to bring sinners to God. And he himself has gone there safely. And you too. With him. And nothing can stop his purposes and his plans. There are going to be many twists and many turns and many challenges and many moments of sin and weakness and affliction and attack and persecution and deception and failing. And it's going to be often in this world where you face affliction, you're going to feel like you're hanging on by a thread and that it's just too much. And I, I, the only way forward is to give in. And at those moments, what you're supposed to do is say, have I been baptized? Not that I get dunked. I can't see three inches in front of my eyes right now. The fog is dense. Have I been claimed by Christ? Have I been identified with him? Have I been crucified with him? Have I been raised with him? Am I seated in heaven with him or not? Which is it? And in a, a special and unique and helpful way, baptism is there to give you something tangible to hold on to, to say, yes. Back then there weren't any clouds and I saw it clearly and I stepped in the water. In faith that united me to Christ. And that succeeds because of the might of God the Son who reigns. And also because the mediation of God the Son who prays for you. This is slightly different, but I think sweet here. It says that he is seated at the right hand of God, the very, very last verse there. And usually in the scripture, the right hand is a statement about power and authority. Even in our day, we talk about somebody's right-hand man. We mean you know, the guy who's close to him and has, has kind of almost like his power. To be seated at the right hand is usually about power and authority, but not always. In Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, we see another effect of Christ being raised and seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. In Hebrews 7 and 8, he's there as high priest ideally positioned to make intercession for his people, to pray for you. Seated at the right hand of God means that he's able to whisper right into his ear. And Hebrews 7 and 8 is emphasizing, and that's why he's there. He's there to reign, yes, but he's there to intercede, to mediate between God and you, to to ask God to offer up prayers and petitions on your behalf to the Father whose ear he has. He's been seated there by God on purpose to do just that very thing. 
So your baptism is also meant to remind you of that. He was raised. So I'm, I'm telling a story here, not just my own story, but I'm also telling the story of Christ and me in Christ. Christ has gone to be seated at the right hand of the Father, has gained me access into the throne room of God, and I stand before him able to ask him for mercy and grace in my time of need. Phrases in the book of Hebrews. I'm, I'm, I'm given access. I'm able to ask him for mercy and grace in my time of need. And when I look at the throne of the majesty in my need, in my weakness and in my brokenness, in my clear and naked unrighteousness, I stand there in front of the throne and I see, and the Father says, done. Why are you even there? Your baptism tells you that story. Why does he mediate for you? The baptism tells you that story too. Raised up and seated at the right hand. Now, again, those things are true with, without being physically baptized. That's, that's true of every Christian. If you're a Christian not been baptized, that's still true of you. Bless God. Bless God. But why baptism? It's because there's something that's really helpful about being able to look at an event that I experienced with my body, that I smelled the water, I felt it rush up my nose. I was in front of people in a, in a place on a ratty blue carpeted stage. I remember that time. Something happened to me. That's really helpful. Again, I, I don't deny, lots of people can say, I remember my dorm room when I, I, I prayed that prayer and I became a Christian, and that works. Amen. But it's not quite the same. You don't have the symbolism of in and out, the public statement of it all. It's good. Not denigrating that, but it's just not quite the same, which is why the scripture holds out to us Baptism. It tells you the truth about you and the truth about Jesus. It tells you about your future and it tells you about your present. What's going on for me right now is that I have a mediator who's asking me for the things I need in my moments of weakness. It's the benefit of expressing faith in a tangible way. It helps assure us tangibly when our hearts and our minds waver and doubt and despair. And look back at a moment when I drove a stake into the ground. And like Christ was raised alive into the spiritual realm again, and like Noah came through the water into a brand new cleansed world, you have been raised to new life also. Peter tells us that right here because he's been incredibly realistic in his book about how hard it is to live in the world. And he wants you to say, ah, but I'm in Christ. I've been baptized. And to remember that and hold on to it. I've been raised then to walk in newness of life. I'm no longer just a worldling. I'm alive in the spiritual realm. I'm actually seated in the heavenly places with him. And newness of life is before me. And I have a mediator in heaven who will give me the grace and mercy I need to walk that out in hope, not in fear. And 
And that's where he goes in the very next chapter, actually, calling us to walk in newness of life, away from the world. So at the end here, if you have not been physically baptized, the good news is that the spiritual realities that we talked about, the theology that lies behind it, is still true of you. If you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ. It's still true of you. And maybe you would benefit in additional ways of having this baptism, this physical baptism to hold onto and to experience and to remember. If so, maybe you'd want to be baptized in, the, in December. And if, if not, if you want to think about it, that's okay. Because getting wet doesn't save you. It's trusting Christ that saves you. So no, no manipulation there, okay? Instead, look and say thank you. Thank you, God, for uniting me to the Son and saving me, for reigning over my life and mediating life now for me. And in that hope, let me pray. Lord, would you speak to us, your people, reassuring words, and maybe for some of us, your people, who are currently right now feeling adrift or confused or challenged and threatened, maybe use, maybe use their baptism for those people. Tangible way of of understanding what's happened to them. Very much like we take the bread and the wine, the bread and the grape juice in hand now in the communion cup, it's a tangible way of understanding what's happened. You speak to us through these events. We don't need this bread and cup. It doesn't actually do anything. But it reminds us and when we undertake it in faith now, even today, it refreshes us, speaks to us again about our, our situation, our standing with you. And so maybe do that with baptism. Maybe do that now with the communion cup. But draw near to your people and talk to us and encourage us, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.